The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we've got a very exciting study as we uh, travel with um, Christian and Faithful into Vanity Fair. So I, I think this may be one of the most necessary studies that we're going to have in Pilgrim's Progress uh, because Vanity Fair represents what? What does Vanity Fair represent? The world. The world. Why do you think this might be very necessary for us as Americans to consider how they travel through Vanity Fair? What do you think, Joyce? We live in Vanity Fair all the time. That's right. That is so true. That is so true. It represents how we are going to travel through the world. Now, I've given you some scriptures that we're going to cover tonight and try to mesh it together with the account in Pilgrim's Progress. And it's going to be a challenge to get through all of it. But I really believe that we need, we need to consider very, very carefully how we live in the world. I think that this is a, a very, very significant issue, a significant study, um, because I think that the American church has, for the most part, compromised with the world, and I think we're paying a price as a result, and if we're going to see any changes, we're going to have to repent and turn away and start to realize in what ways we've taken in worldly values, worldly concepts, in what ways we are living for the baubles and trinkets that are sold in Vanity Fair and how much we need to stop living for those things and instead living for openly for the kingdom of God. Thank you. Does anybody uh, lack a copy of Pilgrim's Progress? Would anyone like to borrow one? All right. These are on sale, as I remember, for... Yeah, they're like two bucks each. So you can buy one after, but you can borrow one now. But um, Oh, sorry. You got one? You need one? You got one? You got yours? Okay. Seriously, if you want to buy one afterwards, $2, you can't beat that. That's incredible. It's like the cost of four USA Todays. I mean, it's just... If you need one, they're they're up here. Okay. Um, what I've done is give, I've given you the blue sheet, and we're going to go through uh, the sheet and compare Scripture verses with the account in Pilgrim's Progress. I, I broke it up into ten, basically ten sections. All right, do you all have one of the blue sheets? Yes? Okay, they're up here on the chair if you need it. First of all, Evangelist warns of future trials. We're going to talk about that. Evangelist shows up and confronts uh, Christian and faithful and, and urges them to, be, to continue in the way and to be faithful and uh, basically gives them a prophecy that they're going to be persecuted and that one of them in particular is going to die. And so that's the first step. Secondly, uh, we're going to talk about the history of Vanity Fair which Bunyan goes into, that it's an ancient thing. It's been around a long time. It's a worldwide phenomenon. We're going to talk about that. Third, we're going to talk about the merchandise and the character of Vanity Fair. What is the merchandise? What are they selling? And what is the nature of the fair? Merchandise and character, Vanity Fair. Fourth, we're going to talk about Christ's experience with Vanity Fair. You think, well, how did Christ have any experience with Vanity Fair? Well, actually, the devil offered to sell the whole thing to him. You can get the whole thing. And so we're going to talk about that. Be in charge of Vanity Fair. You can have it all if you want. Um, the cost was high. All he had to do was do what? 
What did Christ have to bow down and worship the devil? It's about the same thing that's offered to us, only at a lower level. And so Christ is our role model. Fifth, we're going to talk about the obligation that we have to go through Vanity Fair. We have an obligation to go through this place. What does that mean? You can't what? You can't skirt it. You can't avoid it. You've got no choice. You have to go through Vanity Fair. But sixthly, uh, along with that, we're going to talk about attitude while we go through. So that's not the sixth, but we have to go through it. But we don't have to be polluted by it. That's what we need to talk about. Sixthly, what are the reasons for the persecution? The townspeople of Vanity Fair start to persecute these people. Bunyan tells us why. It has to do with their clothing, the way they talk, and the fact that they will not buy this stuff in the town. We're going to talk about that. What's different about their clothing? What does it represent? What about their conversation? And why won't they buy the stuff? And then seventhly, we're going to talk about the nature of the persecution. In Vanity Fair, it starts with verbal abuse. And then it goes to mocking and rejection and ultimately to physical attack and death for one of them. We're going to talk about that. The nature of the persecution, verbal, then physical. And then we're going to talk about on trial, the fact that they have to give an account for themselves. They have to appear before a magistrate and before, um, you know, they, they, they're on trial. They are literally put on trial. And I'm going to say that it's ultimately God who puts them on trial. We're going to talk about verses concerning that. We're going to look at the world's verdict. What did Vanity Fair conclude about one of them? Guilty as charged, and he gets put to death. We're going to talk about that. What's the world's verdict? And then tenth, what is God's verdict? Because faithful gets a chariot to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Chariot to the celestial city. So that's the ten steps that we're going to look at, and we're going to do that all in 50 minutes with supporting verses. Woo! We have no choice. We have to do it. We must needs go quickly. Okay. Um, the first thing that happens is evangelist catches up to them. Now, last time you talked about Christian and faithful and talkative and all that. Have you ever met talkative, by the way? I just don't want to be talkative. That's the whole thing. I mean, the whole thing with talkative is that he speaks, he talks, but he doesn't live his Christianity. And so we end up with, uh, with talkative, and then uh, there's a little poem there that Christian gives about talkative, or faithful gives about talkative, and then we're picking up at that point. Evangelist overtakes them. They look back up the road, and he's hurrying up to meet them. He greets them. They're delighted to see him. He's delighted to see them, and they're welcomed together. Then, uh, evangelist is rejoicing over their triumphs. He's glad for the things that have happened up to that point. They've done well. They've been faithful. Uh, So, evangelist says, Right glad am I, not that you have met with trials, but that you have been victors. And for that you have, notwithstanding many weaknesses, continued in the way to this very day. But then he goes on for there. He says, you're not finished yet. You've got a ways to go. There are many people that have made it further up the road than you and have given up. They've, they've not persevered. And so he says, you are not out of the gunshot of the devil yet. I love that. You are not yet out of the gunshot of the devil. He says, you have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Let the kingdom be always before you and believe steadfastly concerning the things that are invisible. And then he gives them this advice. He says, let nothing on this side of the world get within you. What does that mean? Let nothing on this side of the world get within you. Well, it means don't allow yourself to be polluted by the world. We're going to talk about that. But he says, don't drink in any of the world's attitudes, any of the world's stuff. Don't drink it in. Let nothing that is on this side of the world get within you. And above all, look well to your own hearts 
and to the lust thereof, for they are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Quoting Jeremiah 17:9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So mistrust your heart. It will lead you astray. Your heart wants to get off the path, doesn't it? Can you testify to that? You're yearning all the time. Just like the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the, the God I love. And so we have this yearning to get off the path all the time. It's like the, the steering compass is broken, you know, or, or like a front end needs repair. For those of you that are mechanical, you know, the, the car is pulling to the left, always wanting to get off the road. And so uh, he says, don't trust yourself. Mistrust your own heart. Be tough with yourself. Be strong. That's why Paul says he beats his own body and makes it his slave, lest after he has preached to others, he will be disqualified. So there's a mistrust of your own heart. That's the advice he gives. Now, he's about to go on his way, and then Christian asks him for some prophecy. What's going to happen to us? Tell us what we're going to meet in the future. And he says, okay, well, I will. I'm going to tell you that you are going to be persecuted. And he gives him a prophecy of persecution. He says, my sons, you have heard in the words of the truth of the gospel that you must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, that in every city bonds and afflictions abide in you. And therefore, you cannot expect that you should go long on your pilgrimage without them in some sort or other. You have found something of the truth of these testimonies upon you already, and more will immediately follow. For now, as you see, you are almost out of this wilderness, and therefore you will soon come into a town that, w that you will by and by see before you. And in that town you will be hardly beset with enemies who will strain hard uh, in order that they will kill you. And be sure that one or both of you must seal the testimony which you hold with blood. So he's given them a prophecy that one of the two of them is going to be killed in the town that they're about to walk into now what's interesting about this first of all is up to this point for the most part christian has been struggling internally you know what i'm saying most of his struggles have been internal <coughs> temptations and struggles this is the first time for the most part that he's dealt with an external temptation or struggle coming to him other than that he's been wrestling with his own flesh wrestling with bad advice and this kind of thing but not with the persecution of the world vanity fair is the first really organized external assault on his journey. And so it's beautiful that Bunyan does this because there is this phenomenon. There is the external assault on our pilgrimage, isn't there? And we've got to watch out. Now, another aspect of this is the clear prediction or prophecy of persecution. This is a major feature of the New Testament's instruction to us, isn't it? Time and time again, we are warned that we will be persecuted. Look at John 16, verse 1 through 4 on your blue sheet there. Christ warned his disciples, John 16, 1 through 4, all of this I have told you, he says, so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. So in other words, Christ in John 16, 1-4 clearly predicts that they will be persecuted. And he tells them ahead of time. Why does he tell them ahead of time? Why the prophecy? Why doesn't he just let them go through it? It's almost like planting grass in the fall instead of the spring. You've got to give it time to put down some roots mm. so that when it endures drought or hard times, it'll have something to, to anchor it down. So mm. It's almost like preparation. Mm -hmm. Right. So that the word will take root in their hearts. That's so true. Their faith could be destroyed by a trial if it's too early, too soon. Absolutely destroyed. 
I have proof of that in John chapter 18. Because in John 18, Jesus orchestrates the escape of his disciples so that none of them will be lost. That's what it says. In other words, the clear implication is if they had been arrested and gone through that persecution that night, they would, they would lose their faith. And so in John 17, he prays, Father, I've lost none of them. In John 18, he makes sure that they can escape because they're not ready yet. He says, if you're looking for me, then let them go. He said this in order that the word he had spoken will be fulfilled. I have not lost any of those you have given me. There is deep theology in that. But he's orchestrating the situation so that they can escape. Peter, mindful, willful Peter, does not go into the place of safety there, but says, I know better. I will follow Jesus, right? I'm ready to die. Well, he's not ready, is he? I mean, the little servant girl comes and asks him a question. He's not able to... He is not ready yet. So the roots haven't taken taken a firm hold in him. But if you expect an easy time in this world, you expect a friendly, comfortable relationship with your surrounding culture, and the opposite happens, you will have a severe trial in your faith. If, on the other hand, you expect persecution, difficulties, even to death, and it comes, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. I've told you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you will not go astray. That's Jesus' statement. And then he says in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Uh, I have overcome the world. So he tells them so that they can be at peace in Christ. Not in the circumstances and in the world, but in Christ they'll be at peace. So he's getting them ready. Paul warned his disciples, this is alluded to in Bunyan's text, Acts 14, 21 and 22. Somebody read that for me if you would. Acts 14, 21 and 22. So he predicts ahead of time to these disciples, you're going to go through trials, through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. He's getting them ready. First Thessalonians 3. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy to you, the Thessalonians, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen you and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. Do you see that? It's part of the apostolic strategy to tell them ahead of time, you're going to have a horrible time. Your neighbors will hate you. You will be rejected and scorned by many for the sake of Christ. I told you this ahead of time. That's what he says here in 1 Thessalonians. We told you ahead of time that this would happen, and it turned out that way, as you yourselves know. But Timothy has just come and brought a good report. You're doing fine. Yes, you're going through temptations and trials and persecutions, but you're not giving up. And so we rejoice. But you can see the apostolic strategy here is tell them ahead of time. Paul himself was severely warned, wasn't he? Paul was warned at his baptism by Ananias. Ananias himself said, I will, uh, heard from God, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias said, all right, I'll go then. <laughs> if he's going to suffer, then I'll go baptize him. Anyway, so... That's right from the start. Paul's whole Christian journey is going to be bathed in persecution and trouble. And so it was. But he gave him many other warnings. Acts 20, verse 22 and following. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every spirit, the Holy, in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Now, that's incredible. How do you put verse 22 and 23 
together. What's happening in verse 22? What is the Spirit's activity in verse 22? What is he doing to Paul in verse 22? He's compelling Paul to do what? To go to Jerusalem. What is verse 23? What is the Spirit's activity there? Warning him that he'll be arrested. (laughs) How do you put those two together? Well, Spirit, you're making me go be arrested. Isn't that logical? Put the two together. The Holy Spirit is compelling me to be arrested. (laughs) Yes, he is. And as a matter of fact, in Acts 21, he predicts the same thing. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Thank you, Agabus. So the Holy Spirit is speaking through Agabus and saying that Paul will be arrested in Jerusalem. When we heard this, we and the people pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And look at verse 14. Their response is so godly. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, What? The Lord's will be done. Was it the Lord's will for Paul to get arrested in Jerusalem? We've already proven that. And so... Paul was warned ahead of time what his life would be like, and he was ready, wasn't he? He said, I am ready not only to be bound, but to die. I'm ready to go. And so he's ready. And so Evangelist in in Pilgrim's Progress gets them ready ahead of time that there will be persecution. He gives them a prediction. One of them will die. And it's going to come in in the story like, which one? Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? They're going to have a discussion about it. But the uh, Evangelist gives them that prediction. Now, then I saw in my dream that when they were got out of the wilderness, they presently saw a town before them. And the name of that town is Vanity. And at the town, there is a fair kept called Vanity Fair. It is kept all the year long. It beareth the name of Vanity Fair because the town where it is kept is lighter than vanity. (laughs) And also because all that is there sold or that cometh thither is vanity. As is the saying of the wise, all that cometh is vanity. So what he's saying there is we've got the town called Vanity. Vanity means nothing, nothingness, lightness, worthlessness. And so this world, in effect, Bunyan's saying this world is empty. It's vain. There's nothing to it. It's, it's a light thing. It's a nothing thing. It's got no eternal value. It's a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's what vanity is. And they've got this fair because everything that's sold there is lighter than vanity. And he says this fair is no newly erected business, but actually a thing of ancient standing. I will show you the original of it. Almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city, as these two honest persons are, and Beelzebub, Apollyon, and Legion, with their companions, perceiving by the path that the pilgrims made that their way to the city uh, lie through this town of vanity, they contrived here to set up a fair a fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity, and that it should last all the year long. Therefore, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as whores, bods, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. <laughs> How would you sum up that whole list? What is it? eBay. <laughs> okay, that's good. I like that. 
I was talking to somebody, they summed it up by saying it's stuff. It's just stuff. Wasn't that funny? We, we actually talked about that too, husbands, wives, and all that. But let me ask you, would you want to get your wife at Vanity Fair? I mean, it's like what kind of relationship is going to be started there? This is not a good place to get a mar- marital partner. But at any rate, all of these things are there. It's an interesting list. Now, the Vanity Fair, he says, is ancient. It's been around a long time. And it was set up there, according to Bunyan, by who? Yeah, the, the, the devil, Beelzebub, right? And his buddies, Apollyon and Legion, and all the other friends that they have. It's a demonic thing. And, and so, you know, in my list of scripture there, it's ancient in that Ecclesiastes 1-2 says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything's empty, says the preacher. Ecclesiastes 1-2. But it's, the Vanity Fair is also intentional. It's not an accident, it really is not an accident that every single moment the media tries to persuade you that Christ was wrong when he said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Isn't that what they're trying to persuade you of? It does in fact consist in the abundance of your possessions and in your position, your career and all that. That's what your life is. Christ was wrong, says the world. Well, Christ is not wrong and it is vanity fair. So the devil set up this uh, this fair, Second Corinthians 4.4. 4 in whose case it says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so he set up this world specifically to deceive people lest they believe in Christ. You see that? That's the whole purpose of Vanity Fair. So that people will be deceived and not believe in Jesus. So that's what he does. And so there's this listing of all of this stuff. After whatnot, Bunyan writes, and moreover at this fair, there is at all times to be seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. Here are to be seen too, and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swearers, and that of a blood-red color. So it's a vicious place, and he goes on from there. As in other fairs of less moment, there are the several rows and streets under their proper names where such and such wares are vended. So that here, likewise, you have the proper places, rows, and streets, namely of countries and kingdoms, where the wares of this fair are soonest to be found. Here, then, is the Britain row, the French row, the Italian row, the Spanish row, and the German row, where several sorts of vanities are to be sold. But as in other fairs, some one commodity is the chief of all the fair, so the ware of Rome and her merchandise is greatly promoted to this fair. Only our English nation, with some others, have taken a dislike thereat. So that's just got to do with the Roman Catholic religion and all of the trafficking in religion that Rome did. But as he lists, you know, Britain row and French row and Italian row, he's saying that the whole world is represented by this vanity fair. Isn't that amazing? Now, I think that there's an incredible similarity between the list here and that in Revelation 18 describing Babylon the Great. After this I saw, I'm reading off the blue sheet, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven he had, a, he had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people 
so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I am not a widow and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon city of power. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine, olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriage, carriages, and bodies and souls of men. Isn't that similar? It's, I, I, I just have to believe that Bunyan had this chapter in mind when he was writing about Vanity Fair. They will say the fruit you long for is gone for you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain, all who travel by ship, the sailors, and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads with weeping and mourning, cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. But then in verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. I mean, I think that definitely Revelation 18 is in the backdrop in the, of, of Bunyan's uh, assessment of Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair hates pilgrims. And when you move through Vanity Fair, it will seek to attack you. If you will not dress like they dress and speak like they speak and buy the stuff they sell, they will attack you. And so it is, uh, I think, in Revelation 18. So... Now, as I said, the way to the celestial city lies just through this town where this lusty fair is kept. And he that will go out of the city and yet not go through this town must needs go out of the world. The prince of princes himself, when here, went through this town to his own country and that upon a fair day too. Yea, and as I think, it was Beelzebub, the chief lord of this fair, that invited him to buy of his vanities. Yea, would have made him lord of the fair, would he have but done him reverence as he went through the town. Yea, because he was a person, such a person of honor, Beelzebub had him from street to street and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a little time that he might, if possible, allure the blessed one to cheapen and buy some of his vanities. But he had no mind to the merchandise and therefore left the town without laying out so much as one farthing upon these vanities. <laughs> Christ was not interested. Now, of course, he's alluding to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness when the devil shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He says, all of these things I will give you if you will simply bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And by the way, devil, it's mine anyway. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All of it is his. And the fact is, it's all yours too, isn't it? All things are yours, said Paul. All of it is yours. 
the meek will inherit what? The earth. You're going to get it, only it's going to be much cleaned up once you get it, okay? Praise God for that. So what do you want it for now in its cheap and trinket kind of state? We don't need that. Instead, we want it in its perfected state, the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so that's Christ. He is our, our role model. Christ's temptations and perfections. But we have a danger. We're in danger, aren't we? And so therefore, John writes in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, that's the NAS version, I like it better, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The lusts of this world pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So John warns us there against what? What's he talking about in 1 John 2, 15 through 17? What does it mean to love the world? What does that mean in 1 John 2, 15? I thought for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. You were in the rightly dividing class, I know. The word world is a little slippery in John, isn't it? <laughs> is the world in John 3.16 the same world as in 1 John 2.15? Is that the same thing? No, it really isn't. So what is the world that he's warning us about in 1 John 2.15-17? The fallen world, the world system. and Stuff, right. Vanity Fair, you know? Just go over that list of all of that stuff and uh, and you will see. Daniel, there's a seat here if you want. Thanks. And so we're in danger of loving the world. You know, I think Christianity consists much in our affections. That's Jonathan Edwards. It consists much in what we love and in what we hate. And so therefore, John warns us to not be lovers of the world. Don't be attracted to the stuff that's referred to in Vanity Fair. You've got to guard your heart. Luke 8:14, page 4 of the blue sheet. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Mark 4:19. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. What is that referring to? Those two verses. That's right, the parable of the sower. And what happens to the seed sown among the thorns? According to these two verses that we just read, what happens to it? It's choked out by what? By, frankly, by misplaced affection. It's choked out by loving something, isn't it? Choked out by loving the world. Worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things. Do you see that in Mark? What does that refer to? Desire for other things. What is that? something other than Christ, something other than His kingdom, anything else, it'll choke it out, won't it? Making it unfruitful. And then 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. So there we have a name on it, Demas. We're going to meet him later in Pilgrim's Progress. But he loved the world. And apparently in 1 Timothy 4.10, that's a bad thing. He loved the world, not the way God loves the world, but he loved the world the way John warned us not to. And he abandoned Paul and went to Thessalonica. All right. Well, we have to go through Vanity Fair. We have no avoiding it. It's, it's impossible to avoid it. John 14 says that. My prayer is not that you take them out of the evil one, or take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 1 Corinthians 5, he alluded to this. He said, uh, I've written you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Evidently, you're not going to leave the world. You're going to stay here, and so you must go through it. But instead, you must avoid the pollutions of Vanity Fair. 
Revelation 18.4, which I just read, that I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, namely out of Babylon, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. James 1.27, religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I think that's the point. We have to go through Vanity Fair. But according to James 1.27, we do not have to be polluted by it. Jesus wasn't. He lived in this world and was never polluted by Vanity Fair. 1 Peter 2.11 Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Instead, we should have an attitude, which I've typed there on your sheet, of just passing through. Isn't that what Christian and faithful are? They don't want anything. They're not interested in anything that they have. They are just passing through. If you'll just get out of the way, we'll be moving through as quickly as possible. Please leave us alone. We have no interest in your stuff, right? Just passing through. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a better uh, of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, tells us that we should be aliens and strangers in this world. We're just passing through. We are looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, we have no interest in the stuff here, do we? Shouldn't anyway. So we're just passing through. And then a very interesting passage, 1 Corinthians 7, 29. This is the section on marriage. Remember in 1 Corinthians 7, he's dealing with whether we should get married or not. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 29, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Whoa, whoa, whoa. wait, wait, wait. What does that mean? <laughs> well, we don't have time to get into all that. We did the family. I didn't cover that verse in the family section, did I? No? All right. Well, what I mean is those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. What are those verses as they are accumulated together? What are they teaching? What is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31? Everything is temporary. If you have a wife, you have a husband, think of it as a temporary Situation And it is, isn't it? Because we can't hold on to anything in this world. Because there's death, isn't there? And we can lose things. All right, what about possessions? Can we have possessions? Yes, but as not engrossed by them, not taken in by them, and as if they're not ours to keep. You see, there's a way of living here that's being enjoined. We're just passing through. So don't get attached to anything here. Be an alien and a stranger. Live metaphorically, or maybe even literally, in a tent. I mean, it's up to you. Abraham literally lived in a tent. I think the tent lifestyle is enjoined in Hebrews 11. Moving through. No permanent foundation here. Okay. Well, they move into the town, don't they? Now, as I said, the pilgrims must needs go through this fair. Well, so they did. But behold, even as they entered the fair, all the people in the fair were moved and the town itself, as it were, in a hubbub about them and that for several reasons. So as soon as they get in there, it's just... Wow! I mean, they just come at Christian and faithful. Well, what are the reasons? Number one, the pilgrims were clothed with such 
kind of raiment as was diverse from the raiment of any that traded in that fair. The people therefore uh, of the fair made great gazing upon them and some said they were fools, some that they were bedlams, that means insane, and some that they were outlandish men. So number one, it's their clothing. Now you know where they got their clothing, do you remember? Where did Christian get his clothes? It's a cloak of righteousness, okay? And so that righteousness is going to cause them to appear different than the others. They're going to be living differently. The clothes represent their righteousness. And so they said, there's nobody in Vanity Fair dressed like that. Ooh, well, <laughs> what did that tell you? You know, maybe come out from her, my people, so that you'll not share in her plagues. But they're not used to that kind of clothing. Number two, they also wondered, as they wondered at their apparel, so they did likewise at their speech, for few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan. That means the language of the promised land. They talked about what? They talked about heaven. They didn't talk about Vanity Fair. They talked about heaven. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan. But they that uh, kept the fair were men of this world, so that from one end of the fair to the other, they seemed barbarians each to the other. Now, this is a very interesting statement. This is how it works. We and the world agree that the other is insane. <laughs> Isn't that true? We and the people of the world, we agree about one thing, and that's that the other is insane. They think we're insane for how we live. All right? And all the more, the more faithfully you're living. The more you're not polluted by the world, the more, Paul says, if for this life only we've hoped in Christ, we're above all men to be pitied. So Paul would be looked on as an absolutely insane man because he's gone from one city to the next, beaten up in every place, and all he's doing is making converts for Christ. Right? There's very little earthly pleasure in the man's life. Singing praise songs in the dark in the middle of the night with Silas. That was the most enjoyable thing he did. All right, That's a weird life. Meanwhile, what did Paul think about the unbelievers, the ones that rejected his message? You must be out of your mind. God is giving you forgiveness of sin. He's giving you eternal life. He's giving you all of these things for free. And you stand under the wrath of God and you won't come. That is absolute insanity to me. And so we agree about that. And so Bunyan puts it in one line. They seemed barbarians each to the other. I love that. And so it says in 1 Peter 4, verse 3 and 4, <clears throat> You have already spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. They think it's strange that you don't do what they do. It's an odd thing. And so you're like a barbarian to them. They don't understand it. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Stopping there. Thirdly, the third reason, but that which did not little amuse the merchandisers was that these pilgrims set very light by all of their wares. They cared not so much as to even look upon them. And if they called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity <laughs> and looking upward, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. So the third reason, number one is how they're dressed, their righteousness. Number two, how they talk. They talk about heaven. And number three, they are not interested in the stuff they're selling. Not at all. These are the three reasons why the world finds these two bizarre and why they're going to attack them viciously for those three reasons. And so they're very upset. One chanced mockingly, beholding the carriage of the men, that is the way they lived, to say unto them, what will ye buy? 
But they, looking gravely upon him, answered, We buy the truth. (laughs) What kind of answer is that? (laughs) I I was referring to my trinkets. No, no. We buy the truth and nothing but the truth. I have no interest in what you have to sell. At at that, there was an occasion taken to despise the men the more, some mocking, some taunting, some speaking reproachfully, and some calling upon others to smite them. Now, here it is. This is where persecution begins. It starts verbally. It starts with insults. It starts with mocking. It starts with words. That's how it begins. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You look at that list in Matthew 5.11. Those are words, aren't they? People insulting you. People falsely speaking against you. And he says, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. That is persecution. It starts with words. And then, and then Luke 6:22, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. To some degree, that's more of an advanced persecution. They're starting to exclude you. They're shutting you out from their company. They don't want you to be part of it. Then the next step is general societal rejection, what you could call disgrace. Hebrews 13:12 and 14 says, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. So basically, when in Hebrews 13, the author is saying that Jesus suffered outside the gate. That represents rejection by his own people. He was thrown out. And so also, the next stage of persecution is general societal rejection, disgrace. They try to make us ashamed, don't they? They try to make you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a shaming function. They try to make you feel that there's something wrong with you. Disgrace. And then from there it goes to physical abuse, even to death. Hebrews 11, 36-38. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. So it escalates to attacks on the body. And that is exactly what's going to happen to Christian and faithful. They call upon others to smite them. At last things came to a hubbub and a great stir in the fair, insomuch as that all order was confounded. Now was the word presently brought to the great one of the fair, who quickly came down and and deputed some of his most trustworthy friends to take these men into examination. In other words, they were arrested. Christian and faithful were arrested, placed under arrest. And they were brought before this uh, Lord of the fair. So the men were brought upon examination, and they that sat upon them asked whence they came and whither they went, and what they did there in such unusual garb. The men told them that they were pilgrims and strangers in the world and that they were going to their own country, that is, the heavenly Jerusalem, and that they had given no occasion to the men of the town nor yet to the merchandisers thus to abuse them and to let them in their journey except that it was for that that when one asked them what they would buy, they said that they would buy the truth. But they were appointed to examine them, did not believe them to be anything other than bedlams and mad, they're insane, or else they had come to put all things into a confusion at the fair. Therefore they took them and beat them and besmeared them with dirt and put them into the cage that they might be made a spectacle to all uh, the men of the fair. There, therefore, they lay for some time and were made the objects of any man's sport or malice or revenge, the great one of the fair laughing still at all that befell them. But the men being patient and not rendering railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing and giving good words for bad and kindness for injuries done, 
uh, some men in the fair that were more observing and less prejudiced than the rest began to check and blame the baser sort for their continual abuses done by them to the men. So in other words, they're getting persecuted, they're getting smeared with mud, they're getting beat up and thrown in prison, but they're carrying themselves with such dignity, with such love, they're responding not in kind but actually with blessing, that they're starting to persuade some of the people, right? Some of those that are not so prejudiced against them. They're starting to reach out evangelistically, really, by their behavior. And so there was a division in the town because some of those people defended Christian and faithful. And so then they were set upon and beaten up because they defended them. Whereupon Christian and faithful were blamed for another riot and taken out of the prison and beaten all the more because they had started another riot. Well, it's not looking very good for Christian and faithful in Vanity Fair, is it? But Christian and faithful, it says, behave themselves yet more wisely and received the ignominy and shame that was cast upon them with so much meekness and patience, patience that it won to their side, though but, but few in comparison of the rest, several of the men in the fair. Now, here's the point. Why are they on trial? Well, because God is putting them on trial. Jesus said, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Jesus lit a light in you, didn't he? And once he lights a light in you, he wants to put you up on the stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. It's hard for me to describe as a church historian how many times godly people have stood in front of a council of magistrates to give an account for themselves. It is a repeated theme over and over and over, whether Luther at the Diet of Worms or Huss in front of his council or Tyndale or all of them. They've all had to do this time and again. Somebody standing in front of a magistrate and others listening. Polycarp in his martyrdom. It happens again and again. And why? Because God wants to put faith on display. Are you ready? <laughs> Are you ready to be put on display? Will you respond with meekness and gentleness and with humility? You know something? I think this is a very timely lesson because we've had a very cozy relationship with our surrounding culture for the last 200 years, haven't we? The Church of Christ and American culture have been very well-related. Is that the truth worldwide and throughout church history? No, it is not. Is it starting to decay? Oh, yes, it is. And I'm not saying we should not make efforts to halt the decay and try through political means to slow it down. But I don't know that we'll be ultimately successful or that we should expect a wonderful and comfortable relationship with our surrounding culture. Therefore, we should be ready to be persecuted. We should be ready to be put in jail. Actually, the more you read some of these accounts, like Fox's Book of Martyrs and all this, is the oldest book I have right here. Have, have any of you heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? I know Brevard has. He just gave me a much newer copy. This is the oldest book I have, uh, but this is very new compared to when this was first printed. This is 1824, and it was originally printed during the Reformation time. As John Fox wanted to get the stories out about the uh, persecutions by the Catholics, and so he got that out. And it's a story of people that died. And you read these stories and it's like, oh, you feel like your faith is so weak. You feel like a wimp. And it's like, when have I ever suffered for you, Christ? Some of these people were put on the rack. Some of these people were burned at the stake with, with, with green wood. I mean, took hours, if not longer, to die. You know, And I, I'm just saying, what have we ever suffered for you? And it makes you hungry for it so that if there is a continued decay in the relationship between us and our surrounding culture, be ready for it. Be ready to even seal with your blood your testimony of Jesus Christ. And if you're willing to die for him, 
why not share him? Witness. <laughs> if you're willing to die with him, next time you go on the plane, share the gospel with somebody sitting next to you. What's the worst they could do? Stand up and scream, you Christian, why are you witnessing to me? And then you're embarrassed, but that's all right. But that's not likely to happen. They're mostly just likely to shun you a little bit. Thank you. What's that? On the plane, it's easy. Yes. There are other ways. I mean, captive audience. Pick up a hitchhiker. I mean, what can they do? No, 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 don't do that. That's not good advice. But anyway, that takes courage, doesn't it? Well, they're in prison and, and they look to each other and they're trying to figure out which of them is going to die. They comfort each other that whose lot it was to suffer, even he should have the best of it. They each wanted to be the one who would be the martyr. Why is that? Why do they each want to be the one? Quick way. They don't have to go through Downing Castle or any of these other, other things. I mean, they're home free, right? A little bit of pain, and then you're done. Some people, a Romanian pastor, Joseph Tan, believes that there's a special honor given to martyrs. Based on uh, Hebrews 11.35, uh, where it says that they refuse to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection interesting phrase and I'm not sure that that's the proper interpretation of Hebrews 11.35 but there is a place of honor I think for martyrs and we'll see that in a minute so they were each willing to go now realize how much faith is involved in that I want to die not from some morose depressing thing because I want to be with Christ and I want his his honor I want him to honor me as he says he will in John chapter 12 so I'm willing to die so they have faith now, a, con- a convenient time being appointed, they brought them forth to their trial. And when the time was come, they were arraigned before the judge, and the judge's name was Lord Hate Good. <laughs> so, I'll tell you this. This is rich, because Bunyan himself had been on trial, and he was in prison when he wrote this. And so I wonder if any of his, you know, the people that had put him on trial read this and got fuming mad, you know? <laughs> but the Lord's name is Lord Hate Good. And their indictment was one and the same substance, though in varying form, that they were enemies to and disturbers of their trade, that they had made commotions and divisions in the town and they'd won a party to their own most dangerous opinions. Faithful began to answer. And he said, I'm a peaceful man in effect. He says, I'm a peaceful man. But concerning the king of Vanity Fair, since his name is Beelzebub, I defy him and all his angels. So that's what he says. I mean, since the master of your fair is the devil, you know, I defy him. So that's not going to help him very much. Then proclamation was made that they that if any had ought to say for their lord the king against the prisoner at the bar should appear. And so three false witnesses come up. The first one is envy. The second one, superstition. And the third one, pick thank. Now, I have no idea what pick thank means. I know what envy is and I know what superstition is. But what pick thank is, I have no idea. But uh, we can ask Bunyan when we see him in heaven. At any rate, envy is very significant because it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to Pilate, it says in uh, Matthew. And so they're jealous of Christian and faithful. And so envy steps forward and he says, I've known this man a long time uh, and I will attest upon my oath before this honorable honorable bench that he is, judge says, hold, give him his oath. So they swore him in. Then he said, okay, continue. Now, this is just Bunyan at his best right here. I mean, it's just a little detail. He says, wait a minute, he hasn't sworn his oath yet. Well, how rich is that? Because he's about to lie. (laughs) He's about to be a false witness and try to kill somebody with a false witness. Hold, give him his oath. Okay, continue. My Lord, this man, notwithstanding his plausible name, is one of the vilest men in our country. He neither regardeth prince nor people, law nor custom. Now, this is a common accusation of the people of God. Because we honor God above the king and should... 
that we are therefore lawless and don't abide, uh, obey the king at all. Didn't they say that in reference to Daniel? With Darius, he said he does not, he does not uh, obey you in anything whatsoever. He disregards you completely and, by the way, he prayed to a God other than you. Well, the third was true, but the others weren't. Daniel was a very obedient, submissive man. Just he obeyed God more, that's all. So at any rate, um, after the three false witnesses go, uh, envy, superstition basically says that our religion is not and such as by which a man could by no means please God. We do still therefore worship in vain, are yet in our sins and finally shall be damned. That's what faithful saying about our religion. It's mere superstition. Is it true? Well, yes, it is, as a matter of fact. That's what he says. Then Pickthank gets up there and he says, My Lord and you gentlemen all, this fellow I have known of a long time and have heard him speak things that ought not to be spoke, for he hath railed on our noble prince Beelzebub and hath spoken contemptibly of his honorable friends whose names are the Lord Old Man, the Lord Carnal Delight, the Lord Luxurious, the Lord Desire of Vainglory, my old Lord Lechery, Sir Having Greedy, with all the rest of our nobility. And he has said, moreover, that if all men were of his mind, if possible, there's not one of these noblemen should have any longer a being in this town. Besides, he hath not been afraid to rail on you, my lord, who are now appointed to be his judge, calling you an ungodly villain, with many other such vilifying terms. So he's listing all of these lords in the town, and they're all sins, <laughs> evil men. Well, Faithful wants to defend himself, and the judge says, you deserve to live no longer but to be slain immediately upon the place, yet that all men may see our gentleness toward thee. That all men may see our gentleness toward thee. Let us hear what thou, vile runagate, hast to say. Well, Faithful gives his answer. Number one, his first point of defense is, whatever is contrary to Scripture, we oppose. That's his first point. His second point, true worship must be based on true revelation, namely, Scripture. Point three, uh, concerning pick thanks, friends, they do deserve to go to hell, all of them, every one of them. <clears throat> he says uh, that the prince of this town with all of his rabblemen, his attendants, and by this gentleman named are more fit for being in hell than in this town and country, and so may the Lord have mercy on me. So that was his defense. Basically, you know, I just tell the truth. I mean, that's the way it is. But the first two were the, the primacy of Scripture. Anything that opposes scriptural doctrine, we will stand up against, including worship. So that's what he defends. Well, the judge uh, calls the jury who had been listening all this time, and he gives them a charge. He gives them a little speech that in the days of Pharaoh, an act was made that people should be killed. The babies were killed. The males were thrown into the river. Nebuchadnezzar said that any that should not worship the golden image uh, should be thrown into a fiery furnace. Darius, anyone that didn't pray except to him, thrown into a lion's den. And he says, for that of Pharaoh, his law was made upon a supposition to prevent mischief, you know, the babies being killed ahead of time, no crime being yet apparent, but here there is a crime apparent. So the judge is getting them ready and basically saying, please, find them guilty, okay? So off you go. The jury is sequestered. I don't even know how long they need to go out. The jury went out. Their names were <clears throat> as follows, Mr. Blind Man, Mr. No Good, Mr. Malice, Mr. Love Lust, Mr. Live Loose, Mr. Hetty, Mr. High Mind, Mr. Enmity, Mr. Liar, Mr. Cruelty, Mr. Hate Light, and Mr. Implacable. So it's not looking too good for Faithful right now. <clears throat> and everyone uh, gave in his private verdict among him themselves and afterwards unanimously concluded to bring him in guilty before the judge. 
and first among themselves, Mr. Blindman, the foreman, said, I see clearly that this man is a heretic. Isn't that rich? Mr. Blindman, I see clearly that he is a heretic. Yeah. And then Mr. No Good, away with such a fellow from the earth. I, said Mr. Malice, for I hate the very looks of him. Then said Mr. Lovelust, I could never endure him, nor I, said Mr. Live Loose, for he would always be condemning my way. Isn't that the point? I mean, it makes them feel guilty for how they're living. Hang him, hang him, said Mr. Heady. I think that's a good one, too. <clears throat> Put his head in a noose. A sorry scrub, said Mr. Highmine. My heart riseth against him, said Mr. Enmity. He is a rogue, said Mr. Liar. Hanging is too good for him, said Mr. Cruelty. Let us dispatch him out of the way, said Mr. Hatelight. Then, said Mr. Implacable, might I have all the world given me. I could not be reconciled to him. Therefore, let us forthwith bring him in guilty of death. And so they did. Therefore, he was presently condemned to be had from the place where he was to the place from whence he came and there to be put to the most cruel death that could be invented. They therefore brought him out to do with him according to their law. And first they scourged him, then they buffeted him, then they lanced his flesh with knives. After that they stoned him with stones, then pricked him with their swords, and last of all they burned him to ashes at the stake. And thus came faithful to his end. Now the thing that's amazing is that all that stuff really did happen in real life. And during the times, uh, the, even just preceding when Bunyan wrote, this was the kind of stuff that went on. And it's recorded in the Book of Martyrs here, which you should read. I mean, it's incredible what our brothers and sisters in Christ have undergone for their faith. And I think you should read this kind of book because it strengthens your faith and your commitment. And I think it really does drive out complaining. When you read this kind of stuff, it just expels complaining. What do we have to complain about when our brothers and sisters have gone before us and have suffered this kind of treatment? And so faithful dies. But that's not the end of faithful, is it? Isn't that sweet? They can kill the body, but after that they can do nothing to you. And Jesus said, therefore, don't fear them. But I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who after destroying the body can destroy you in hell. He's the one you should fear. And that is God. Now I saw that there stood behind the multitude a chariot and a couple of horses waiting for faithful, who so soon as his adversaries had dispatched him was taken up into it and straightway was carried up through the clouds with sound of trumpet, the nearest way to the celestial gate. It's the shortcut. <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't that wonderful? Why do we fear death? I mean, suppose you're working as an hourly worker and about two or three in the afternoon, your foreman calls you in and says, hey, everybody, you can go home. The rest of the day is paid. Go home and spend it with your family. Would you be dragging and moaning and complaining and frustrated that you were let out early to go be free? Absolutely not. You'd be rejoicing. And so we talk about the incredible tragedies of some of those in church history who died young. Could be that God said, you've served me enough. Come up and be with me now. You know, David Brainerd and some others had died real young. We forget that the day of our death is in the hands of God. It's, it's his choice. It's not an accident. And so faithful's done. He's free. He doesn't have any more pilgriming to do. He is free. He's home. And he gets a chariot ride right up to the celestial city. But as for Christian, he had some respite and was remanded back to prison. So he there remained for a space. Now, I think that Bunyan's phraseology here is significant. But as for Christian, you know, faithful gets on that chariot and goes up to the gate. But as for Christian, he's not done yet. He's got some traveling to do. And so it's harder for Christian than for faithful. 
He had some respite and was remanded back to the prison. So there he remained for a space. But he that overrules all things, having the power of their rage in his own hand, so rotted about that Christian for that time escaped them and went his way. What is Bunyan saying there? He that rules over all things. Who's that? Well, it's God, the sovereign, who holds their rage in his hand. What is Bunyan saying? God is sovereign over the rage and attacks of his enemies. And he moves it and directs it like a river, whatever way he chooses. He orchestrated uh, Christian's escape. And so he went on his way. And as he went, he sang, saying, Well, faithful, thou hast faithfully professed unto thy Lord with whom thou shalt be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights, sing, faithful, sing, and let thy name survive. For though they killed thee, thou art yet alive. Isn't that rich? And so faithful suffers and dies, but he's still alive. Now one footnote. I saw in my dream that Christian went not forth alone. For there was one whose name was Hopeful, being made so by the beholding of Christian and faithful in their words and behavior, in their sufferings at the fair, who joined himself unto him and entering into a brotherly covenant told him that he would be his companion. Thus one died to bear testimony to the truth and another rises up out of his ashes to be companion with Christian in his pilgrimage. This hopeful also told Christian that there were many more of the men in the fair that would take their time and follow after. This is a fulfillment of Tertullian's statement, the blood of martyrs is seed. The more of us you mow down, the more spring up. That's just the way it is because of the way that God puts our faith on display. Well, we'll stop there and uh, God willing, we'll take it on next time. You have your verses there. The world's verdict. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. But God's verdict. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Isn't that incredible? He's not ashamed to be called their God. And then Hebrew or John 12:26, Jesus said, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the incredible promise that you will honor any who are willing to die. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it bears many seeds. And if uh, we are willing to live that way, the Bible says in John 12, 26, you will honor the one who serves you, Christ. I pray that this room would be filled with people who will be so honored uh, on that great and final day. I pray that they would be uh, fearless servants of Christ, willing to lay down their lives, willing to be witnesses for you, O Lord, willing to die, yes, but more likely willing to witness and to speak a word for Christ and to be courageous and to face the, the dislike and distrust of the world. Father, be with my brothers and sisters and help us all be faithful until you take us right to the celestial city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.